Well, a couple weeks ago, Tim McAvoy and I were in Panama on a scouting trip, getting ready for our intergenerational mission trip to Panama uh, this coming July, and uh, it was an invaluable experience. We got to meet some of the local pastors that we'll be working alongside and meet some people from their church. We got just a general lay of the land and to be able to understand a little bit more about what to expect culturally and just what things look like where we might be staying. And we spent a lot of time together. <laughs> uh, it was really good, Tim. And um, one of the places that we got to visit was a, an old colonial ruin. And there uh, at this, this old mission was a old bell tower from the 16th century, and it's called Panama Viejo Cathedral. There's a picture of it here um, that Jen's got. It's dark right now, but uh, there it is. That's me. Yeah, so there's the, the, the tower. It's about 30 meters high, and you can go to the next one and uh, see that because it's 30 meters high, it's got a pretty good view of the surrounding city. And um, one thing you'll also notice is that if you fell from there, you would not be having a good day, right? Like there's some jagged rocks at the bottom. And that got Tim and I talking about, you know, both of us have traveled various places in the world. And we noticed that most places besides the U.S. don't have any kind of warning signs. Like I was thinking if Samara was there with me, she could just walk out and like fall down and die, and it's like that way in many places in Europe and other places you've probably been to as well. Um, I guess most places just kind of assume that you have common sense, thinking like, if I fell from there, it would be very bad. Thanks, Jen. We can cut that. Um, I'm trying to figure out why in our country we're so over like safe about everything. There's warning signs, and I guess it kind of makes sense. We do live in a culture where someone can eat from a fast food restaurant, develop diabetes, and then sue that fast food restaurant. I mean, it's ridiculous, right? So it makes sense in our culture uh, to maybe put a warning sign by a high voltage power line, or you know, put a rail over a cliff or something like that, just for fear we might get sued. It got me thinking, though. Are we any less accident-prone because we have all these warning signs? Do they even make us dumber and more naive? Because I'm standing at that thing, and like, where's the warning sign? I feel like I could just want to fall off this thing. In a sense, I think warning signs are at best suggestions. And most of us, if you're honest with yourself, maybe not about every warning, but think about speed limits and things like that, we typically think, it's not going to happen to me. Like, I know in the paper every weekend somebody slides off the road and rolls over, but it's not going to happen to me. I'm special, or I'm lucky, or I'm just too skilled of a driver, right? Okay, so this is going to sound weird, maybe, probably, but Corey and I were talking about Disneyland and how they're going to cut off some of our favorite rides to put in the new Star Wars land that's coming in a few years. And one of our favorite rides is Thunder Mountain, and we were talking about all the new upgrades to it and how when you go down that one part, it looks like your head will get chopped off if you stood up. And then we thought, I wonder if that's ever happened, right? So we looked up on Snopes.com, and nine people have actually lost their life at Disneyland since 1955, all because of accidents. And if you exclude the ones who died because of equipment malfunction or just, you know, uh, equipment failure, um, there are five people who died because they were stupid and, and <laughs> like, undid their seatbelt and stood up in rides and fell off and got crushed and stuff like that. And the one common denominator of these five people who were really dumb and ignored the signs is they're all teenage boys, yeah. I actually had more stories about my teenage years, but my sermon was too long, so I cut them out. Ask me later. Um, unfortunately for the human race, negligence and stupidity are equal opportunity killers. You don't have to be a teenage boy in order to fall victim. And most of us don't do warnings very well. 
Like I said before, we tend to think we're special, that that warning sign won't, it doesn't really apply to me. In the first century AD, the Apostle Paul was trying to warn the church in Corinth that participating in idol worship was bad for them. He warned them that idol worship is what led to the destruction of the Israelites centuries earlier and that the same thing would happen to them if they weren't careful. But Paul knew that people don't often heed warning signs very well, so he knew he needed to give more motivation to the Israelites. After he warns them that idolatry would literally kill them from the inside out, he shifts his tack to persuade them using a theological argument. Let's not be, you and me, like teenage boys at Disneyland. Let's see if we can understand his logic and apply it to the way we live. Would you stand with me as we check out what Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 11, 1. 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 11, verse 1. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak to you as wise men, you judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we not stronger, or we are not stronger than he, are we? All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things are, are edifying. Let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. So, eat anything that's sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go and eat anything is set before you without asking questions for conscience' sake. But if anyone says to you, this meat has been sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience's sake. I mean, not for your own conscience, but for the other person's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all in the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as also I please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, we've been in this series in Corinthians for some time, and uh, if you're a guest with us, what we've been talking about a couple weeks ago is the fact that the, some of these Corinthian Christians were making the case that since there is only one true God in heaven, that the gods of these idols in the, in the pagan temples 
they're not real anyway. And since they're not real, what's the big deal about going to these parties at pagan temples, right? No big deal. They're not real gods. Well, gets me thinking, why on earth would Corinthian Christians even go to pagan temples to these parties? There's probably several reasons. I'm going to mention three. Uh, First of all, before they converted to Christianity, most of the Corinthians grew up in pagan households. They still probably had family and friends who would invite them to the festivities throughout the year. Second, it could be socially advantageous to attend pagan feasts and festivals. Usually, a wealthy patron would buy expensive meat at the market, bring it to the temple for a feast. If you were invited by one of these patrons to the feast, it could increase your social standing. Like, Tommy invited me to dinner at this thing. That's awesome. I want to be in Tommy's team. Conversely, if business deals and connections are being made at the temple and you don't show up, you're going to miss out and probably lose face. Finally, these feasts at the pagan temples were known for their indulgence of the flesh. Food, wine, women. It was all there, and even though it could destroy your body and your marriage and your very soul, people did it anyway. Paul expects nothing different from the average Corinthian citizen. But for those who had pledged their lives to Jesus, he points out the logical incongruity of their actions. And he makes a point by way of comparison. He begins by talking about the sacrament of communion, the Lord's table, the celebration of Jesus that has been central to the worship of the Christian church since the very first generation of Christians. And you have to appreciate that in the ancient world, shared meals were more than just a way of getting calories into us, and they were more than even just sharing a a conversation with friends. You see, sharing in a meal in the ancient world was a way of professing your loyalty and your deep friendship to someone else. Friendship, in many cultures still today, is hard to come by. But once you make a friend, you have that friend forever. Contrast that with kind of our culture where everyone's a Facebook friend, but you may not even see that person ever since high school. Or, you know, our friendships can typically be more fickle and easily separated than uh, than in some cultures. So meals were a powerful symbol of deep loyalty. And by the way, that's why the religious leaders were always so ticked off at Jesus, for eating with tax collectors and sinners. Like, what's the big deal? You're just eating with them. Well, no. By eating with them, what Jesus was saying is, I'm allowing you to come into my world. I'm associating myself with you. I'm going to be your friend to the end And indeed, that's exactly what happened. Jesus loved us so much that he died for us. Even more powerful than a regular meal among family and friends was the idea of the sacred meal. Israel had sacred meals. When they made sacrifices in the temple and they ate the meat sacrificed to to God, they believed that the presence of God was there with them in that meal at the temple. And when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we believe that the risen and reigning Jesus is present with us in a very special way. And when the pagans ate sacrificed food at their temple worship, they believed that the presence of their gods were there at that meal as well. So, to participate in a sacred meal is to participate in the life of the deity that that meal represents. When we participate in a sacred meal together, we belong to each other as well. And Paul uses the word koinonia, 
to describe what happens at the Lord's table. Koinonia, translated into English, as I said earlier, uh, means partnership. We have partnership with Jesus, and when we come before this table, two things are going on. We have partnership with Jesus, but we have partnership with each other as well. Two things. And here's Paul's point. You cannot logically pledge yourself to Jesus at the Lord's Supper every Sunday and then participate in, in, in table fellowship with another deity on, on a Tuesday. You can't be partners with Jesus and his church part-time and then partners with Demeter and his cult on Wednesday and partners with Aphrodite and her cult on Friday. That's incongruous. It's like you can't root for Washington and WSU at the same time. Sorry, Marsha McAvoy, I can't get that in my head. You can't do it. Heaven help the foes of Washington, right? In a marriage, you pledge your life and your love and your loyalty to a spouse if you come home one day and say, hey, guess what? I got engaged to someone else. You said to your spouse, they call that a deal breaker. That's not a good idea. So that's kind of the logic, pretty straightforward. But in the case of the Corinthians, there's a twist. See, they were making the case that since they knew Jesus to be the Lord of heaven and earth, that meant that the pagan idols weren't real. Therefore, they reasoned it was okay to attend these worship gatherings and eat the food on their tables it was all false anyway. And here's the important thing. Paul agrees with them. He agrees that idols are false, that the Roman and Greek gods and goddesses are not real. But he also knows this, that worship is never neutral. Worship is never neutral. We become exactly like that whom we worship or that we worship. And what the pagans were worshiping was demonic. And Paul doesn't, doesn't make this up. He gets his sources from two places. One is the scriptures. Anne read the scripture earlier. Deuteronomy 32 talks about the demise of the Israelites due to idol worship. When they were worshiping idols, they were in fact worshiping demons, the scriptures say. And that is his theological backing. But Paul also experienced demonic influence. He saw first uh, firsthand what happened to people who were partaking in pagan worship. He saw that they were becoming less and less and less human. The Corinthians, who were saved by grace through faith in Jesus, were allowing open sin in their church among their members and not saying anything about it, not confronting it. They were arguing about who's the better Bible teacher. I think it's Apollos. I think it's Peter. I think it's Paul. I think it's Jesus. They were arguing about who's the better Bible teacher instead of actually following the Bible to strive for unity with one another. They were arrogant and spiteful and taking each other to court, and they were dragging each other's name through the social mud and in so doing, giving Christ a bad name and his church a bad name. Now, why were they acting like this? Why were these Corinthian Christians so different in character from the Jesus they claimed to worship? Why are so many of us like that? The reason is because they were walking contradictions before a Green Day song, if anyone knows what I'm talking about. They ate at the table of Jesus on Sunday, but then partnered with demonic activity the rest of the week. Now, I seriously doubt any of these Corinthian Christians were like, you know, I'm going to be part of this church, which gives me zero social standing in Corinth. 
Um, and then I'm going to go worship a demon that wants me dead on, on, on the rest of the days of the week. Nobody does that. Well, there's a few people that really were. They were like goth stuff. And... But the error of the Corinthians was in trying to find life in things or in people besides God. It happens all the time. We compartmentalize our life with Jesus into this private, spiritual part of our life. But when it comes to everyday living, we give our time and our devotion to any number of things. And when we give ourselves fully to something else or to someone else, it opens the door to the demonic. It could be trying to find your life in a career advancement or being liked by everyone. It could be an obsession with knowing and following all the rules. And it could be obsession with knowing and not wanting to follow any of the rules. We can turn our vision of retirement into something that is so obsessive that it affects the way we live now, afraid to make any risks or to do anything. We can make our bodies gods and goddesses by obeying their every demand for food and drink and sex and pleasure and pampering. You name it. Human beings, you and I, we are masters at taking the good things that God gives us and turning them into something that we obsess about. And those things end up controlling us. They become curses to us rather than blessings to us. It wouldn't be a sermon from Chris if I didn't say, human beings are made in God's image. We are endowed with great abilities to create and to influence culture, to actually shape cultures. We can express sacrificial love to each other, which I think is perhaps our most powerful gift that God has given to us. But when we worship anyone or anything except God, we will be deformed stunted caricatures of what it means to be made in God's image. N.T. Wright reflects, when Paul speaks of demons as being involved when idols are worshipped, he doesn't think so much as being somehow equal and opposite to the Messiah. These are semi-personal forces and powers. To see them still at work today, all you have to do is look at what happens when people allow money or war or sex to drive them in directions they would never ordinarily dream of going. Have you ever done something, gone down a path, that you're just like, that is not me. Why did I do that? Why did I fail? And I mentioned like the video game thing for me. Why did I actually pretend I was in the bathroom longer than I needed to be, ignoring my children and my family so I could play this stupid video game. I and mean, that's a, a fluff thing that was real for me, right? I shared that a couple weeks ago. But we do this. We obsess about these little things in our life, these, these strongholds that we allow to take over. And but when you really acknowledge it and realize, you're like, that is not who I am. Why am I allowing this thing or this person or their opinion to absolutely take over my identity because we're walking contradictions the news doesn't even shock us anymore another politician caught up in a national scandal another religious leader steps down for abuse of power aka they got caught a movie icon enters rehab for the fourth time 
Same old news headlines, different names every week, every month, every year. We are walking contradictions. When writing to the church in Rome, the Apostle Paul himself bursts out. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I'm doing, I don't understand. For I'm not even practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. He continues a little further on. For the good that I want to do, I don't do it, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. And a little further on. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner person, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner to the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? I hardly need to ask the question. I'd be willing to wager everything that you at some point in your life resonate with that statement that Paul is making. I don't do the things that I often know are right to do, and I often do the exact opposite of things that I know are wrong, the exact opposite of the things that I preach about or that you teach other people or that you would long to embody. Wretched person that I am, who will set me free from the the body of this death? Trying harder, that's what it is, that will save me. No. New rules and regulations, we've got to get, you know, figure this thing out, that will save us. We need more warning signs and guardrails. No. I know, we'll abstain from everything that just might be fun and pleasurable, and that way we'll be safe, right? No, that in itself, by the way, is demonic. Read screw tape letters. <laughs> the, biggest, the biggest scare of the little demon is that the guy would find something absolutely pleasurable and joyful. No, no, no. You are made for joy. Listen to Paul. Wretched person that I am, who will set me free from the, this body, uh, the body of this death? <laughs> Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. The answer is so Sunday school. It's so Jesus. He set us free from sin and death. Paul's answer is not more rules. It isn't more thou shalt not. Paul knows that it is Jesus alone who saves, and that is why he can say, flee idolatry, because he's not giving you one more thing not to do. You flee idolatry so you can flee to Jesus. And the rest of this passage, 1 Corinthians 10, 23 through 11, 1, it's all about freedom. All things are lawful. All creation is God's, and that means it's very good. Just remember, you and I were made to be masters of creation, not master creation. We were made to care for creation, to steward it well, and to enjoy the fruit of our labor. But as Jesus warns, you and I cannot serve two masters. It's a contradiction. There's only one master, and his name is Jesus, and he alone is worthy to be our master. Any other master, even if it starts off good in the beginning, will only corrupt and control and destroy. 
Jesus alone sets us free to be who we're always made to be. Image bearers of the living God. It all comes back to that. So Paul says we're free to do, the, to do all things as long as what we do brings glory to God. Remember, Paul's not saying <clears throat> that, it's what, that what you eat is important. It's more where you eat it that's the important thing. If you're at a friend's house and you think that the meat may have been sacrificed to an idol at a temple the evening before, who cares? It's all God's. God made the animal. He made the meat. Eat it with thankfulness and joy. The whole world belongs to God, including the meat. Just don't eat it at a temple because that would be table partnership demons. And don't let your freedom be a stumbling block to someone else whom Jesus died to rescue. We can take that simple principle and apply it to anything. There's tremendous freedom in what we can rightly eat and what we can rightly drink and say and do as long as we check our motives. Why do I want to say this to this person? Why do I want to post this on Twitter or Facebook? Does it give glory to God? Am I able to give genuine thanks to God for this meal? Are my actions bringing glory to God? You might think, I don't know. I guess I'd have to know the Bible better to know that. Well, yeah, but there's another way to know. One way to know if something brings glory to God is whether or not it's good for your neighbor. Let's look back at the table talk for a minute earlier in this passage. Paul writes, Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there's one loaf, we who are many are one body. Your neighbor, does he Stanley Jones? Your neighbor is the agent authorized to receive the glory you owe God. Your neighbor your friend, your husband, your wife, your literal neighbor, the person across the world, your neighbor is the agent authorized to receive the glory you owe God. And that's why Paul will gladly lay down his rights and freedoms to make sure he can share the gospel with as many different people as possible. It doesn't mean he's controlled by people's opinions, but he's sensitive to his cultural setting and the conscience of others. Here's a stupid one. I don't like hot weather too much. If it's over 75, uh, I get grouchy, so come to Panama with me, look out, right? And one of the things about cultural stuff there is that as a pastor, um, I'm not supposed to wear shorts when I'm in a pastoral setting. So even our Merge ministry liaisons who who work for the ECC, they could wear shorts and flip-flops, but when I went to the church sites, I had to wear pants. Now, I, I bought some really cool, cool pants from REI that have like vents and I did all the technology stuff, but I'm still wearing pants. It is like 92, and it wasn't even the humid season. I'm just saying that that is a, I mean, that's stupid, but that is an example of I have every right to wear shorts, and I could totally play it off like, oh, I didn't bring any pants, I'm an American. Um, But you know what? That would be a stumbling block, especially in July, when I'm likely to share things as a pastor from America to a congregation in Panama. And for people, that might be scandalous to look at some dude with white legs in flip-flops. Actually, I tan up all right. Come on now. (laughs) But still, might be a distraction for another reason. I'm just saying. No. But that's a small cultural thing that, you know, know, that that, that makes a big difference. So what what rights are we willing to lay down so that we can share culturally appropriately? 
Paul was striving to live in the freedom of Jesus while putting his neighbor's good above his own rights. And that's why he can say in chapter 11, verse 1, be imitators of me, just as I am also of Christ. What does it mean to imitate Paul? I mean, that's heavy if you think that imitating Paul is, dang, I've got to be a missionary. Um, or darn, I've got to write a large chunk of a Bible. I mean, it's, that's pretty intense, right? Um, is that what it means? I've got to be an apostle now? First of all, you don't get to choose that, so I'm just saying, uh, no, no, that's not what it means. It means, you know what Paul's known for? It's being weak. It's being weak. It means placing your faith in Jesus alone. That's what Paul's known for. Jesus, nothing else. It means admitting our weakness. It means confessing our sin. It means recognizing that in my weakness and your weakness, that's where Jesus is strongest. That's where he, he shines the brightest. In your doubts, in your fears, Jesus is magnified. In your humility, you will inherit the kingdom of Jesus. And in laying down your life for others, you will find the life of Jesus welling up. Abundant life, fruitful life, eternal life. Would you pray with me? Lord, we confess uh, the reality that we are walking contradictions with a foot in each world, one in your kingdom, longing to be more like you, longing to taste and experience the new life that you died to give us, and another foot in the reality that we know, the way the world really works, at least the way we think it does. Lord, we hear these words, know them to be true in our heads, but need your help, Holy Spirit, to take action on them. Would you help us to die? more and more to ourselves and find our true life in you. And whatever that looks like, Lord, I pray you will give me and my brothers and sisters courage to take the next step. Amen.